Right, our scripture this morning is from Matthew 28, um, 16 to 20. A little shorter this one, one this time. <laughs> um, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right. Um, so we are in week 12 of a 14-week series uh, that goes through the story of the Bible. And if you've been with us through this series, you probably know a little bit about where I'm going to go with this passage. <laughs> uh, Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, and that all nations is super important um, because this passage is the fulfillment of millennia of the hopes of the Jewish people, that the Gentiles would stop fighting against God, the God of Israel, but that the righteous reign of God would come to the whole earth. It started when God promised to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through his descendants. And it continued into Psalm 2, which gave a vision of a coming righteous king, which would command the respect of all the nations, and he would mediate God's good reign to the world. It persisted through the exile, when the people of Israel were deported from their land, which was going to be the suffering through which all the nations would be blessed. And now that Jesus has blessed the nations with the presence of God, he has suffered for the sake of the whole world to purify his people. The hope that Israel has had for thousands of years is coming to fruition. And Jesus leaves no room for doubt. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And these are the words that Israel has been waiting to hear since the first time they received a king. Now the true king of Israel is able to rightfully claim that there no longer remains any substantial threat to his power. Last week, we saw that Jesus on the cross defeated the powers of evil by sacrificing himself, and even death itself was defeated in his resurrection. Everything that makes life seem meaningless and awful has been exposed as a fraud and a sham because the ultimate meaning of life was revealed in Christ. We exist to give ourselves up for one another, and that's the law that runs the kingdom of heaven. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to the Messiah, and the consequence is not go and wreak havoc and force the Gentiles to bend the knees since they no longer can stop us, but go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is sending out his church as his invasion force to spread the kingdom of heaven to the whole world. But just like Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth by shedding his own blood, now Jesus is calling his new people to spread the kingdom of heaven by shedding their own blood. And it's not to make them scared and submissive, it's to make them disciples just like they are. The part that was most scandalous to the Jews of this time wasn't that Jesus was calling the Gentiles to worship God. That's what all the Jews wanted for millennia. It wasn't even that they said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. If Jesus claimed to be Messiah, then that is exactly what he should have said. What was scandalous was that he wasn't calling his followers to rule over the Gentiles as a subjugated people. It wasn't going to be a cathartic 
reversal of fortunes, some nice revenge for five centuries of Gentile rule. The attitude wasn't going to be, yeah, sure, peace and justice are here, but first let's get some payback. The Gentiles weren't being forced to bend the knee at gunpoint. Jesus said they were supposed to be accepted into the people of God as full and complete members, and that was supposed to be done through self-giving love. Gentiles were going to be just as legit a part of the people of God as a guy who's been a Jew his entire life. And that was no small thing. The Jews had some serious resentment, sometimes justified, for how they were treated by Gentiles for hundreds of years. The Jews had come to consider the foreign Romans and Greeks as evidence of their exile and national shame. Every year, they celebrated Hanukkah, which was about how the Jews liberated themselves from the oppressive treatment of a Greek king in 150 BC. And they hoped that something similar would happen soon. At the same time that most of the books in the New Testament were written, about 70 AD, there was a war going on in Judea. The Romans were, or the, the Jews were rebelling against the Gentile Romans and trying to set up their own kingdom. It was a brutal war. The Romans won easily, and they sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which has never been rebuilt to this day. In 73 AD, the Jews made a defiant last stand at a fortress called Masada. The Jews laid siege for three months by creating a massive dirt ramp, which is this. You can still see it today. Um, when the Romans finally got into the fortress up here, um, they slaughtered every last person. In the picture, in this next picture is one of the caves uh, where they piled up the dead bodies. About 20 or 30 years after the last book of the New Testament was written, in 130 AD, there was another revolt and the Romans sacked Jerusalem again, and they tried to erase the Jewish identity. They renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina in honor of the god Jupiter. They barred any Jews from entering the city, renamed Judea Palestine, and built a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount. This was the context where Jew Jesus and his followers called for Gentiles to be reconciled to Jews and for these Gentiles to be allowed to become full members of the people of God. No questions asked. The Jews have had half a millennium of pain and resentment building up, and they're ready to unleash it onto those that have wronged them. But Jesus is calling them not only to forgive these Gentiles that have persecuted them, but to actively welcome them into their community as full members as they had never been before. The Jews had labored and suffered just to survive Gentile occupation. It was a hard-fought blessing of being God's people that had been passed down through the perseverance of their Jewish ancestors. And now the Gentile people would have all the blessings and all the hope for the future that the Jews do with none of the trials. In fact, Christ, in Christ, God was making a new people, whereas Paul says, neither uncircumcision nor circumcision count for anything. In other words, it wouldn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile. Last week, we saw that Jesus was coronated on the cross. He was basically crowned as king over the whole world because he conquered the evil and chaotic powers from his throne on the cross. And it's, of course, fitting that once King Jesus takes the throne, that he would lay out his law for the new kingdom, because that's what he does here. 
Where before, Israel was commanded to follow the Torah, now the new people are meant to follow the commandments of King Jesus. It even sounds kind of similar. If you've spent some time reading the Old Testament law, and if you have, God bless you, um, you might recognize that teach them to obey everything I have commanded you sounds a lot like what Deuteronomy says all the time, something like, um, when you have obeyed in accordance with all the law that I have commanded you. But the key difference here is that the law that Jesus gives is not meant only for the Jews. It's meant for everyone. And it makes sense. If Jesus is creating a new people, he's going to need a new law for them. And the mark of whether someone is in this people isn't a culturally exclusive one. It's not circumcision that marks you as a new Christian, but baptism. In that way, Christianity kind of becomes its own culture or ethnicity. But the key difference is that it's not exclusive. In other words, you can be a Christian Jew, or a Christian Roman, or a Christian Greek, or a Christian American, or a Christian Indian. This is why it's such a big deal to Paul that Christians not require Gentiles who want to become Christians to have been circumcised. Because getting circumcised is just the first step towards becoming a Jew. And once you're a Jew, you have to keep kosher, you have to celebrate Purim, you have to do all of that. And what that would mean is that the kingdom of God is no longer a kingdom of all nations. It's a kingdom of Jews again. In other words, they'd be doing basically what the Jews had been doing forever. The playbook had always been, if someone wants to become a Jew and be part of the people of God, they have to get circumcised, they have to keep the Sabbath, they have to celebrate Purim, the whole nine yards. And what that means is that you're denying that Jesus really is the promised king from Psalm 2 who unites Jews and Gentiles. If Jesus really is that Messiah, then that means he's bringing Gentiles into full membership of the people of God as Gentiles. And if all he does is make them Jews, then Jesus isn't really fulfilling his role as the Messiah. Paul's point is that the Messiah is really here. The kingdom of God is here. And it might not look like the way that the Jews wanted it to look. It might not be Romans being forced to bend the knee at gunpoint. But the kingdom of God has really entered into the world, and he's reigning through Jesus. And if we're acting like everything is business as usual and getting the Gentiles to become Jews, then we're denying that Jesus really is that promised king that has all authority over heaven and earth. In other words, if you're trying to get people to convert to a different culture in order to become Christians, you're doing it wrong. And this is something that I think is really difficult, though. Study after study shows that people tend to be a lot more com comfortable with people who share their same culture. It's a heck of a lot easier to say to someone who wants to become a Christian, watch these TV shows that we watch, wear these clothes that we wear, play these sports that we play, and then you can come to church with us and we'll welcome you. And we don't necessarily have to say that explicitly. We can do that just by not talking to people who look a little strange. But we really have to look at ourselves whenever we want to tell someone to do something to be a part of the church and think, wait, is the reason that I want this person to change, is that because their culture is a little bit different? Or is it because some, of something Jesus actually wants me to do? And that's sometimes a hard line to tread. There might even be ways that we even implicitly create a culture around the church that's only welcomed to people of a certain culture, and that can have the same effect. I certainly don't have all the answers, especially because I'm pretty new here, um, so I'm always open to your thoughts. 
But what's really cool about this is that we actually have a good reason to value di diversity. Christians value diversity because it's the definitive evidence that King Jesus has been given authority over all nations and that God has fulfilled his promise to bring all nations to himself when the fulfillment of that promise would have been considered impossible. There are no divisions between people except those over which King Jesus is fully sovereign. And when people practice the self-giving love of Jesus the Messiah, that's the true path to diversity. You, you see people all over the world straining to figure out how to live in a multicultural environment these days because of the rise of global markets. Everyone's at a loss over how to maintain their own cultures and traditions while respecting others. It turns out that the first Christians figured it out pretty well about 2,000 years ago. They recognized that Jesus Christ has been given full authority over all nations, both Jew and Gentile. He has treated a new people that includes all nations, including whatever traditions and holidays and practices they do, so long as they bend the knee to the lordship of King Jesus. In Christ, Jew and Gentile were able to worship together and have dinner together because Jesus broke down the dividing wall between the peoples by his own self-giving love. And that was happening while this was happening. It was messy sometimes, sure, but they used some wisdom to, to figure it out. God somehow broke down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles in the church at the same time that there was a brutal war that was fought between Rome and Judea. I mean, surely in those churches, there were people with family members fighting in that war. There were people with strong opinions about it. And they were allowed to live in peace with one another. And Christians today can say that if God did it before, then he can do it now. We actually have hope that different peoples can live together in peace if they submit to Christ and his kingdom. And you can see little bits of that today. There are people halfway around the world with whom I have practically nothing in common. But what we do have in common is that we worship the same God, and we have the same vision for a world set right, and we have the same gratitude to the same king for the same sacrifice that he has made, and we have the same law that's the commandments of Christ. That, if anything, is grounds for a deep affection. As you see, though, the law that Jesus lays down here is a tough one. Go and make disciples of all nations is hard when you have a deep resentment for those nations, especially when they're actively at war with your people. We've tried to do similar things for years, and we haven't been able to do it. So how did the disciples actually succeed in drawing together all nations? Well, at the beginning of the gospel, Matthew described the birth of Jesus. He said that his birth would fulfill the prophecy that said, See, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was a really important thing. In the Old Testament, it was the most important desire of the biblical authors that God would be with his people. Like we saw at the beginning of the series, the book of Genesis really makes clear that God's presence is the only hope for the world. When humans sinned, God's presence was withdrawn from humans, which meant that chaos and evil entered into the world. Humans recognized that problem, so they tried to restore God's presence on their own terms by making a tower that stretched into the heavens so they could have God's presence whenever they wanted. God instead decided to be present with the world through Abraham's family and lived with them in a temple, 
But his family sinned all the time, and that put it in jeopardy. Finally, the exile happened, and that meant God was no longer with his people. Jesus being called God with, his, with us is really important. You can base, probably think of tons of times when people say God is with us to basically mean we can't fail. And that's a totally correct thing to say. When Joshua was called to invade the promised land so that Israel could settle there, God's only guarantee was simply saying, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that was enough. I mean, who could possibly stand against Joshua if God was with him? And that's what God's with us means on an individual level. But on an even larger level, God's presence means that the world is being recreated back to God's good intention. God being absent is what sent the world into spiraling into decay, evil, and death. So God being with us means that the order of creation is coming back. Abraham's family was meant to basically just live their lives, not mess anything up, and let God be with them. And that would mean that the world is set right. They couldn't even do that. So Matthew says in the beginning of the book that God came and was with us physically in Jesus. In a fitting way now, Matthew ends the book by saying basically the same thing. The book begins with a baby being born as a sign that God is with us, and now it ends with that child saying, surely I'm with you always. What that means is that Christians have a role in the world that's a lot like the role that Abraham's family was meant to play. Except the difference is that there's nothing that we can really do to screw it up. There's no big long list of laws we have to keep so that God can be with us. I mean, certainly things will go smoother if we do the right thing, but in the end, God will be with the church no matter what. We don't need to be smart or clever or talented. All that matters is that God is with us wherever we go. And if God is with us, then God is with everyone around us. Just like the promise to Joshua that God would be with him before he invaded Canaan was the only guarantee of his success, the promise that God would be with us is the only necessary guarantee of our success in spreading the goodness of the kingdom of heaven. And that means that God will certainly remake the world back to the way it's supposed to be through us. And that's why in my first week here, I could be so confident that God was going to be successful in furthering God's kingdom through our church, because ultimately, it never had anything to do with us, but it had everything to do with the fact that God was with us. The reason the world is so thoroughly broken was because God was absent, but that means that we have the antidote to the world's chaos. Because God is with us, we are the world's hope for salvation. Our mission is basically to do whatever we think that King Jesus wants us to do. And wherever we go, God will bless the world. In Genesis, everything just kind of seemed to work out for Abraham's family, even when they did stupid things or made mistakes. The same thing happens for the church in the book of Acts. One of the very first things that happens in Acts is basically a reversal of what happened to the Tower of Babel. At Babel, people tried to get the presence of God themselves, but they were scattered and their languages confused. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, God's presence came out of nowhere and rested on the Christians that were present. And all of a sudden, they were able to speak the languages of places far away. But that didn't mean that suddenly the church was full of skillful, clever, and creative people, though some of them definitely were. In fact, it seemed that like God got more done through weird coincidences and even mistakes than he got th through amazing talents of the first Christians. 
all they did was whatever they thought God was calling them to do, and it worked out pretty great. For instance, if you turn to chapter, Acts chapter 6, the 12 disciples turned, uh, called everyone together, and they were like, we're really good at preaching, so we've been neglecting the poor and the needy and the widows. And this is a quote. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of God's word to serve tables. That doesn't sound much like Jesus, does it? I don't think he ever saw waiting tables as mutually exclusive with preaching God's word, right? Maybe, maybe not. So let's see how it works out for them. So they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One of the people they choose is named Stephen. And you look down to the very next passage and something really interesting happens. He was doing the whole waiting tables thing, and he also happened to be doing some pretty cool miracles, which might have been even greater than the ones the disciples were doing. And then he gets to chapter 7, and he gets seized by the Jewish authorities to be stoned. So then Stephen does this huge long sermon, probably the longest one in the entire book, which lays out the whole history of Israel and its fulfillment in Jesus. I'd say that Stephen preached the word pretty well, even as he served tables. So the disciples probably made a mistake with this whole division of labor thing. And you can tell they realized it because after that, the disciples were very attentive to the needs of the poor. But the mistake didn't matter. In fact, it helped matters. It allowed the gospel to be spread through the tremendous witness of Stephen. And Paul himself was one of the people who heard it. Then skip along to Acts 20. And Paul is giving this super long and probably a little bit boring sermon. Sound familiar? Um, it gets to the point that one young guy falls asleep during the sermon, and he literally falls out of the window and dies. So Paul goes down, and the kid is raised from the dead. And everyone sees the power of God in Paul, and the gospel is spread even more. This kind of stuff just keeps on happening throughout the book. By the end of the book of Acts, Paul has been arrested three times, and is intentionally making his legal situation worse by appealing to Caesar so that he can travel to Rome. The first Christians fumbled and bumbled their way right under the nose of Caesar, and the kingdom of heaven was invading Rome. If there's one thing we can learn from them in Acts, and there's totally plenty to be learned, it's their sense of optimism and adventure. And this kind of mindset doesn't really come naturally for me. I'm a Washington Commanders fan, <laughs> and we haven't won, ever won more than 10 games in over 30 years. One of my friends from college was a Patriots fan who was born in 1999, which, if you didn't know, was the year that Tom Brady was drafted. When he grew up, he basically never watched a Patriots team that wasn't a Super Bowl contender. I remember the Patriots were playing a game that decided who would go to the Super Bowl, but I saw him in his room, not watching the game, but studying during the second half. I asked him, what's going on? Aren't you watching the game? And he was like, eh, game's over. We're winning. And they were only up by like two touchdowns. <laughs> but of course he was right. They did win, and they went to the Super Bowl, and they won that too. As a Commanders fan, I'd seen them bl blow leads like that practically every game. So I was thinking about every possible way that it could go wrong. My friend, on the other hand, had practically never seen them blow a lead like that, and he was 1,000% confident that they would win. They could even be down 28-3 to at the end of the third quarter, and he'd still be sure that they would win somehow. 
he'd look at all the adversity that came beforehand and chuckle, yeah, in the end, this will make for a good story. I think you can see that difference in our personalities, too. <laughs> I've been so shell-shocked by disappointment watching my team that I've been, I'm pretty pessimistic, J not just about football, but, about, but just generally. My friend actually might be the most confident person I've ever known. He just has a completely different mindset, like, all through life. And the early disciples were a lot like my friend. They were absurdly optimistic. There were no failures, only opportunities. Paul gets imprisoned, and instead of feeling sorry for himself, he just thinks, yeah, I can use this. Send me to Rome. I want a trial there. Maybe he can spread the gospel. Every tragedy was used as a way to spread the kingdom of heaven, and they were absolutely right. They didn't spend forever strategizing how to win over the empire. They just went out there, and they did it. They knew if they did what they thought God was calling them to do, things would probably work out right. And they knew that because they knew God, that God was with them, um, that they had exactly what the world needed. There was nothing the evil political leaders and disobedient people or demonic powers could do to them. Of course that was true. All those powers did their absolute worst to Jesus, and that was how they were totally defeated and how Jesus was crowned as a king. What more could they do to try to, to stop them that Jesus did not overcome? They didn't need to fear those things, and they didn't need to fear failure, because the power of everyone who oppressed them or opposed them was broken on the cross. They had every reason for optimism. God was with them, and he's with us. That didn't mean that bad things didn't happen to them. But the outlook that the disciples had was such that they basically saw those bad things as part of the adventure of working for God's kingdom. They were so inspired by God's vision of a world made right where peace and forgiveness reigns in the nations, and so convinced that God was with them that those bad things were just a part of the adventure of a meaningful life. They got shipwrecked and stoned and lived hungry, but thought, yeah, this is part of the game I signed up for. Let's see how God manages to use this one. In the end, it'll make a good story. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom to navigate the diverse kingdom that you've created, and give us the the optimism and confidence that comes from your presence. Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.